This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. During all of this, I called one of my police sources and I was like, what's going on here? And he said, Nate, picture the craziest story you've ever covered times a hundred. And that's all I can say. He couldn't tell me more. And I think he proved to be right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom. And they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories. And now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. This is a special edition of Wicked Words because we taped it live earlier this year at CrimeCon in Las Vegas. A quick disclaimer, we recorded this in a large hall, so you might hear some unrelated audience noise in the background. Journalist Nate Eaton moved to Idaho from Virginia to relax with his family. Little did he know that he would be drawn into one of the biggest true crime cases in decades, the investigation into Lori Vallow Daybell and her husband. Nate has the inside details on the trial and the plight of both families. Hey, y'all. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. So this is a live taping for Wicked Words, and I'm really excited. Thank you. Yes, I'm excited. And I am excited, for one, I love being in Vegas, and I love seeing people in person. But number two, I am used to doing this show in my bathroom closet with a curtain behind me that covers up all my blue jeans, and I'm always in sweats. So this is a new experience. I'm really excited. And I'm really excited about this story. So we're going to cover with Nate today the Lori Vallow Daybell story, which I know many of you know. And I know, Nate, enough about this story to ask incorrect questions, probably because I think I do know stuff about it. So you need to correct me. And I'm really excited to talk about it, though. Well, there are so many aspects to this case. We're going on three years now, multiple states, multiple family members, uh, multiple alleged crimes. So I can understand if your if your facts might be a little off, not off, but, you know, there, there's a lot of information here. He's covered this case from the very beginning. And you're right, it's so complicated that when he pointed me to the website, there's a whole who's who characters list, there's a timeline list, it is a lot to untangle. So, you know, let's just start from the beginning. I like this story, the first thing Nate said to me when we met was, I said, how did you get involved with this case? And he said, well, I was in the hustle and bustle of Richmond, Virginia, and I decided to move to Idaho to you know, take a little bit of a step back and relax a little bit. And then he gets dropped into the biggest true crime case in a, a very long time. So how did this even start for you? Yeah, I was a local television news reporter in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, we were starting our young family, my wife and I. I was the 11 o'clock news reporter, the lead reporter. So I was doing a lot of crime stories, a lot of shootings. 
And I did want a kind of a slow pace and get away from television. So we moved to Idaho, launched EastIdahoNews.com, a local news website. A lot of times we might cover cows that are in the road <laughs> or things like that. And one day in December of 2019, uh, we get a news release from the Rexburg Police Department. And it's two pages long, which is very unusual for a news release from a police department. Normally, it's a couple of paragraphs. And they were saying how there were two missing children, J.J., and Tylee, and that their parents were not cooperating with authorities. And they did not say the location of the parents, which was interesting. Well, we immediately start reaching out to people in the community saying, does anybody know JJ? Does anybody know Tylee? Does anybody know this family? And no one did, which was unusual because a lot of times if a kid goes missing, people rally around and they want to do things. This was a few days before Christmas. The news release came in on a Friday On Saturday, the police sent another news release with photos of Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. And they said, these are the parents of these missing children. They are not in Idaho. They are not cooperating with authorities. Looking back now, this all seemed to be strategic on their end. But at the time, as a reporter, we're like, why, why are they doing things this way? Well, In between that 24-hour period of when the kids' release came out and the parents' release came out, we had done some research and learned that Chad Daybell's wife had died in her sleep months earlier and that Lori Vallow's husband had been shot and killed in Arizona months earlier by her brother, Alex Cox. And he had died a week before the news releases came out. So you've got three dead people there, you've got two missing kids, and you've got two parents who were refusing to cooperate with police. And during all of this, I called one of my police sources, and I was like, what's going on here? And he said, Nate, picture the craziest story you've ever covered times 100. And that's all I can say. He couldn't tell me more, and I think he proved to be right. Do you think from the very beginning that the Rexburg Police Department was prepared for this? Were they equipped to handle a case like this? Well, it's obviously, I would imagine, the biggest case they've ever handled. And I think when the initial call came in months before this release, it came in as a missing kid case, a welfare check. The grandparents of JJ called and said, we're worried about our grandson. Can you go check on him? Now, police get calls like this regularly, and the majority of the times, everything's okay. And they went over to the home to check on JJ. And that's when things started. You know, Lori said that he was with a friend down in Arizona and they were at a movie. Well, they contacted the friend and the friend said, no, he's not with me. So I think at that point they realized this is big. Every detective shifted to this. And then they started to involve law enforcement from Arizona. The FBI came in to assist. The Fremont County Sheriff came in to assist. So I don't know if Anyone could really be prepared for it, honestly. As a newsroom, I don't know if we were, because this is, this is such a huge thing. Huge story, huge cast of characters. Yeah. Lots happening. So let's go back and just get context for all of this. So who do we start with? Is it Lori or is it Chad? Because there's a lot of backstory for both of them. Good question. <laughs> Lori Vallow is beautiful, blonde, has the type of personality that all of her friends say she just sucks you in. You meet her and she just brings you in. Well, she was married four times before Chad, got married young as a high schooler, got married again, married her third husband. He died of a heart issue after they had separated. And then you've got her fourth husband, Charles, who's shot. 
I talked with one of the nannies that worked for Lori years ago in Hawaii, and she said at that point, Lori read a book about the end of times, and she was fascinated by it. That's all she wanted to talk about. So I think she became obsessed with these end of times teachings, found these groups that would talk about prepper days and preparing for Christ's second coming, and Chad was writing these type of books and working with these type of authors. So Chad's writing these books, Lori finds these books, they then meet at a prepper convention, and Lori is fascinated because she's meeting this author, and Chad sees this beautiful woman who likes him, who's, many say, a bit narcissistic. So you start telling someone with a personality that they're a goddess, that they were married in a previous life, which is what he was doing, that they helped create worlds, and that they would usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And her friends describe it as a, it's like a match and gasoline. One of them is a gasoline, one of them is a match, and together, an explosion. Did you get the impression that Chad actually believed all this, or was this a manipulation tactic to get this woman in bed? Chad has written several books, and I wouldn't call it New York Times bestsellers. Pretty average writing, you could say. Someone said it's like third grade writing. But he was working with another author who wrote a book about a near-death experience, and that book sold a lot of copies. And then Chad, I think, maybe realized her books did so well, he came out and said he had a near-death experience and wrote a book about it. Hmm. His family members tell me they had never heard about this near-death experience until this book came out. So I think that he may have seen the success of, of her and then maybe adopted it to his story and then started to gather these type of beliefs. I don't know if he truly believes it. I think that... I mean, maybe he did because he was teaching this before he met her. Yeah. But maybe when he met her, he realized that she was attracted to this type of teaching, so it escalated. That's a great question. Do we have an idea of what Lori and Charles's marriage was and what kind of mom she was before Chad is introduced to the scene? From all family members, Charles loved Lori. I mean, he went and filed for divorce when she started to kind of go off the deep end and then tried his hardest to save their marriage. And by all accounts, she was a good mother before all of this. They adopted JJ and he had special needs. He's on the autism spectrum, but they adopted him and everyone says she was a loving mother. There's photos of them, you know, doing all sorts of stuff together. But when she started to get involved with these religious beliefs and then really got involved with Chad Daybell and Chad's telling her that Charles is possessed by a zombie and the only way to get rid of a zombie is to pray the zombie out of you or kill them. She obviously went for these teachings, but Charles was madly in love with her. Charles had a good job. He made good money. He took care of her. Obviously, Lori didn't, you know, reciprocate that. So one of the things I think is interesting, if I'm looking at the two families separated, is Lori's family is more interesting. The brother relationship, what's your take on Alex Cox? And I've read some pretty interesting things about their relationship, he and Lori. Yeah, a lot of stuff has come out about that, that they were very close, that Alex would do anything for Lori. And I think as the case unfolds, as it already has to a point, it may appear that Alex did a lot of these type of, these crimes, these serious crimes, but they, they did everything together. And Alex was involved in their little religious group and believed in these teachings. 
And of course, they told Alex, you are, you are on the Lord's errand. You are doing what the Lord wants you to do. And he went with it. I know that publicly in the beginning, Lori's mother and sister defended her on national television. I know that those feelings have changed a bit. I've been in touch with several family members who have not come out publicly and have not done interviews, but I think when the timing is right, they will. And this has just crushed them, this whole thing. They truly believed that JJ and Tylee were alive and that Lori was caught up with this new husband. And I think there were a lot of people believe that JJ and Tylee were alive. They never imagined they would have been tortured and buried in Chad Daybell's backyard. Well, and let's start with the chronology. So Charles is first, right? Is this the first death that happens? Charles is first. It was July of 2019. Mm -hmm. Charles was going over to the house where JJ was, and he went in the house, and Alex Cox shot and killed him. Alex Cox told investigators at the time that it was in self-defense, that Charles tried to come at him with a bat, and uh, Alex had to shoot him. That case was never publicly addressed, I guess you could say, for months. That was in July. And then in October, Tammy Daybell dies in her sleep. 49 years old, in good health. She passes away, and she was buried three days later. No autopsy was performed. Chad insisted that an autopsy not be done. In Idaho, it's up to the coroner if an autopsy is done. The coroner had just been elected. It's a huge county. Autopsies cost money. I believe at the time in the budget for that county, they budgeted two autopsies a year. So I think that the coroner showed up, said, okay, nothing suspicious here. Tammy gets buried. Around that time is when, actually before, several weeks before, we know now, the children were, were killed and buried in Tammy's backyard. So she was alive with those kids in those backyard for several weeks. But no one knew it. Apparently not knowing, no. So that, that with July, Charles dies, October, Tammy dies. Two or three weeks later, Chad and Lori get married in Hawaii by themselves, no family members except a photographer and a ukulele and uh, lays. And then December... Well, two or three weeks later, the grandparents in Louisiana, Larry and Kay Woodcock, are like, we haven't had any contact. Police need to investigate. And then December is when the news comes out that these kids are missing. But by the way, a week before, Alex Cox suddenly dies in Arizona. So between September when the kids go missing and December when the Woodcocks come and sound the alarms, we haven't talked to them, no one else Notice that these kids were gone, no teachers, no neighbors, no friends, or were they isolated? Well, they were kind of isolated because of a move. Lori took the kids and moved to Idaho from Arizona. That's why nobody in Rexburg knew who these kids were. They moved into a, a town home, and a week or so later, Tylee died. Tylee was killed. And then they did enroll JJ in school in Idaho, but it was only for a few days when Lori went back to the school and said, we're going to withdraw him uh, we're going to homeschool him. And then he was killed. So it was kind of like the family in Arizona wasn't really keeping in touch with them, or if they were, they weren't getting answers. Lori kind of cut off communication with everybody. Her niece, Melanie, did move up to Idaho in the same apartment complex where Lori was staying, but she says she never thought to ask about where JJ or Tylee were. And Lori told everyone that Tylee was enrolled at the university in Rexburg, which would have been plausible. She had received her GED. She was 17. She could have started classes at BYU-Idaho. But no, as far as we know, had those grandparents not said anything, I don't know how long it would have been before there would have been some questions about where are these kids. 
Well, let's talk about the actual deaths. So Alex Cox, what do we think happens? Is he ambush Charles? Yeah, you could call it that. Charles showed up at the house. It was early, early on a weekday, and he went in the house. Alex told police that Charles came out at him with a baseball bat and missed, and he had to, or hit him in the back of the head, and he had to shoot him. Well, Charles played baseball in college. He was a great baseball player, and he was a big guy. He was muscly. He's not going to miss. Yeah, if he's going to swing and miss, he's going to take you out. He's not going to give you a little blood on the back of your head. So Alex said he then had to shoot him. Well, police later said not only did he shoot him once, but when Charles was on the ground, he shot him again. So if there was any sort of self-defense, why would you need to shoot twice? Lori then leaves with JJ, who was in the house. They go to Burger King. They stop and get a pair of flip-flops. And then she takes JJ to school, returns back, and says, oh, yeah, it was self-defense. You might have seen the video out there. She's got the long curly hair, and she's kind of laughing with the police officers. We're new here. He came after my brother. She's taken down to the police station. She's interviewed and, and released. The investigation did remain open. A lot of people are like, well, why didn't police do anything right then, arrest Alex right then? Well, they were still doing their investigation. Maybe they could have acted quicker. I'm not sure. It makes you wonder. So yeah, that, that's what happened when Charles showed up. That's how he was killed. But I also remember, and I'm sure you guys, if you've followed this story, I remember the footage, the body cam footage of Charles coming out and talking to the police and saying, my wife is threatening me. She thinks I am a zombie. She thinks I'm possessed. I'm afraid of her. So I'm just so confused between the shooting twice and that threat, which obviously is in the police record. I wonder why there was no big red flag with the police. Yeah, it is hard to watch that video with Charles that was done months earlier. When he filed for divorce, he put in the divorce papers, my wife thinks I'm a zombie and that a man named Ned Schneider has inhibited my body. And she's talking about God coming and her ushering in Jesus Christ. And he asked for a psych eval on her. And at one point, a psychological evaluation was done on her, but she was released. And you can watch the videos of those interviews with her, and she seems normal. She talks to the police, and, and they can't really hold you against your will. But yeah, he had gone for help multiple times. And it is heartbreaking to watch those videos. At one point, he got home from a business trip, and his car was gone from the airport. She had taken it. He had to track her down at a hotel, and there's footage from the officer's body cams where he's like, she's crazy, she's lost it, something needs to be done. And he even went to his sister and said, I have a million-dollar life insurance policy. I'm worried something's going to happen. I'm changing the beneficiary to you. It will no longer go to Lori. He didn't tell Lori that. It happened, and then sure enough, when he died, Lori calls the insurance company and says, where's the money? Well, she wasn't the beneficiary. See, that would have been interesting to me. If she had known that, would he have died at all? Because it's trying to untangle her motive of whether or not she was in her right mind when all of this happened. I mean, what do you think? You mean if she had known she wasn't going to get the money? Right. Well, it, it makes you wonder because I don't know how much money they got from J.J. and Tylee's death. Right. It seemed to be that whatever was stopping them from being together needed to be done away with in a way. But Tammy, Chad's wife, weeks before she died, Chad upped the life insurance policy on her. So that was a financial situation. And then when he showed up at the school, she was the school librarian. Everybody loved her. She was kind of the sole breadwinner as well. I mean, Chad wrote his books, but she was the one that worked for benefits. And when uh, he showed up at the school to collect belongings, there were a bunch of cards that the students had made for her, for the family of, we, we miss you, you know, our condolences. He didn't want them. So do we have an idea of what his relationship 
with Tammy was like? Positive? Marriage? There were no indications that there were any problems. This is all according to family members, mainly on her side, who says they were a typical couple, children that were growing. They were starting to enter the grandparents' phase of life. They lived in Utah for several years, and Chad came to Tammy one day before all of this and said, I've been told by the Lord that we need to move to Idaho. Tammy did not want to go. They were born and raised in this town of Springville, Utah. She did not want to go. When they went house hunting in Idaho, why leave everything? And it's not like he was leaving for a job. He didn't have anything in Idaho to move to. He just felt that he needed to go. So they found this home around the corner from his brother. This family said, please, anywhere but here. You know, this is our area. So Chad and Tammy move up there and settle in, and Tammy gets this job. And I think after a few years, she got used to living in Idaho, but... She kind of did what her husband asked, and they never filed for divorce. They never sought marriage counseling, as far as we know, or anything. I think they were just a a normal, typical couple. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So obviously she doesn't know about the affair. That we know of. Mm -hmm. And maybe if she did, her family tells me that she never mentioned anything to them about, I think, Chad's cheating. But looking back now, there were visits they had together as an extended family where they know for a fact now that Chad was having that affair. Mm -hmm. And he was sending some of these text messages that had been released from these family reunions to Lori on a private phone. So that was happening. And, you know, one interesting thing is a week before, well, 10 days before Tammy died, they live in a very rural part. I mean, they they live in farmland, you could say. She gets out of her car one night. It's October. It's dark. And she says there's a masked man in her driveway Mm -hmm. who was shooting at her with what she thought was a paintball gun. And she yelled, and the man took off. Well, it makes you wonder now if that was Alex Cox with a real gun that misfired mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. And I think that as the trial comes along, we'll find more of that. It may not have been a paintball gun and there may have been an attempt on her life that night. Maybe a silencer. I mean, I don't, I don't know what would make that noise. It'll be interesting to hear it unfold. So if we go back in the timeline, Charles Vallow is dead July. And then we know that Tammy dies in October of natural causes and in around September, JJ and Tylee die. What happens between July, when Charles is dead, and September-ish, when JJ and Tylee die? What escalates for her to turn so quickly on the kids? Well, after Charles dies, Chad is telling Lori that, and this is all according to court documents that have been released and family member witnesses, things like that. Chad is telling Lori originally that his wife's going to die and he's going to end up in Arizona with her. And then the story changes to, you need to move to Idaho to be near me. And don't worry, I know I'm married, but Tammy is going to die. The Lord has told me that Tammy will die. So Lori is kind of waiting to see when Tammy's going to die. 
and it's not happening. And finally, Chad tells her, you need to move up here. Just trust it, you need to move up here. And so Lori packs up everything and moves to Idaho. Interesting side note, Lori hates the cold from what everybody tells me. She loved Arizona, she loved Hawaii. If you see a lot of photos of her before she's in jail, she's in crop tops, she loves the heat. Rexburg, Idaho is not the hottest place in the world. It is very cold. The winters are long. It's not a place for her. So it's not like she wanted to move there for fun. Right. So between that time, she's getting ready for the move. She moves up to Idaho. I believe it was the last week of August. Enrolls JJ in school. Tylee dies first. JJ dies a few weeks later. And then one day I get a call from the owner of a, of a storage unit facility. And he says... Lori Vallow came in here weeks before and got a unit and she hasn't paid the bill. Do you want to see what's in the unit? Hmm. And she had signed the contract, Lori Ryan, which was another interesting thing because that was the name of her third husband. So I don't know if she was trying to divert away her real name. I'm not sure. But we went in there and in that storage unit, it's JJ's scooter, it's photos, it's all these personal belongings that you wondered why she would have abandoned it. So they got this unit during all that time. They're storing stuff. Tammy then dies. They go to Hawaii and get married. What is the sequence of events? How does this happen? And do the kids complain at all about zombies beforehand? Because I had read that Ty Lee had had a sense that something was going on. Yeah. Well, JJ was on the autism spectrum and has some special needs. So as far as him complaining, I I don't know if he, how aware he was, but Tylee was aware, and people have told me that Tylee and Lori did not have the best relationship because Lori was always on her phone. One of her many phones. She had four or five phones. What? One was dedicated just to Chad. Mm. And she heard all this zombie talk and dark and light and all that. And one day, according to a friend, Lori had said that Tylee was a zombie. And Tylee said something like, oh, no, not me, mom, not me. So... I don't know if Tylee was aware. Tylee was fiercely protective of JJ. She kind of acted like his mom in, mm. in, during all of this. Loved JJ. And what we still don't know to this day is their actual cause of deaths, how they died. We know how their bodies were found in a horrific manner. We may never know on Ty, in Tylee's case because her body was dismembered and then burned severely. And the police were literally going through dirt, sifting through it, looking for parts of her body, not to get too graphic, to try to confirm her identity. So Tylee probably had an awareness. I don't know if she thought she was going to die. And I don't know all of the beliefs that she believed along with her mother, but she may have known that she wasn't, you know, in her mom's good graces. The other thing is she's 17 and a lot of teenagers argue with their mom. So, so maybe it was just one of those teenage phase things that they looked at. And Alex Cox is still alive at this point, right? Is he involved with this? Alex Cox's phone pings at Chad Daybell's home, his yard, the day that they believe the bodies were buried. So yes, he's very much alive. He's very much involved. He's with them daily. He moved to Idaho from Rexburg and got a townhouse in the same facility. So yeah, he's with them this, this whole time. He's with Lori, meets Chad. And then he gets married to a woman in Las Vegas around Thanksgiving time, and he dies three weeks later. But not suspicious, is that right? By all accounts from authorities, it was natural causes. But in police recordings that his new wife said, the day before he died, he said, if anything happens to me, I've got a, I believe it was a safe in the closet that's got money and a gun, so you know it's there. So it may be the only coincidental thing in all of this, or we may never know. 
So they go missing and Tammy dies of natural causes in October. And December is when the alarms are sounded. And this is when they start searching for the couple. Is that right? Yeah, I guess you could say that. There weren't like official search parties that were out. And looking back now, police were well aware that they were in Hawaii. They just didn't want to publicly announce that because then Chad and Lori could have taken off. Mm-hmm. They had eyes on him in Hawaii. We got a tip one day in our newsroom right after Christmas from an anonymous person. I still don't know who they are to this day. If you're here, thank you. That said, <laughs> here's where Chad and Lori are with a GPS coordinate. To your newsroom? Wow. So on Facebook. So we figured they were in Hawaii. I went to the police and said, we're going to go to Hawaii and try to find them. Wow. The police said, can you please hold off a little? Because again, we don't want to spook them. If you hold off, we can kind of give you a heads up on when the timing is right. So we did. And I believe it was two or three weeks later, I get a call one day. It was on a Thursday that said, you might want to buy a plane ticket for Hawaii. And I said, when? And they said, tomorrow. And don't tell anybody. And so he was an intern with us at the time. My colleague and I got a plane the next day. I did tell my wife, but I didn't tell the other people in our newsroom. And we didn't know what was going to happen. Right. We had no clue. They just said, get there. We got there. We landed. The next day, I touched base with a police contact, and he said, nothing's going to happen today. So just kind of lay low on the island. Nothing's going to happen. And so a couple hours later, I get another call that says, we're going to have to speed things up here. And I said, oh, is something going on? He goes, something's right now. And at that moment, a police car, we have it on video. We've actually never released the video, but I'm on the phone. A police car is following a black SUV that was theirs, and they were right in front of us. So I, just, I didn't know that, though, and I said, I told our driver, I'm like, just follow them. Whoever that is, and if it's not them, we'll leave. And sure enough, it was them. Wow. So we beat some of the detectives there, and we get out of the car, and for the first time, I'm seeing Lori Vallow 20 feet in front of me and Chad Daybell, and they looked so different. They looked, Chad had lost weight, His hair was done. He was in shorts and a t-shirt. Lori was wearing an outfit like she'd been to a yoga class or been on the beach. They're on vacation. They were vacationing. They were enjoying their Sunday afternoon Uh and appeared to have no worries other than Lori looked pretty mad. She looked pretty upset that she had been stopped. So they cover what happens. We didn't know at that point. Again, we were there getting video wondering what's going on. And so we hung out and finally an officer came over and said, We're not going to arrest them. We are going to seize the car. We have a search warrant on the car, and we have a search warrant on their townhome, which was about 10 miles north. And I said, okay. So he goes, so when we're done, you can do whatever you want. I said, so wait, they're not going to have a car? And he said, no. And I said, and I can go talk to them. They won't have anywhere to go. (laughs) This is perfect. I mean, where are they going to go? What I was hoping is they'd say, sure, we'll sit down and talk with you. And so one of the detectives said, when we're done... I'm going to give you a sign like this. And for those listening, it was kind of like a we're cutting loose sign. And he was across the way from me. So we're sitting there with our cameras rolling. I see the sign. I tell my photographer, I'm like, let's go. And that's when we approached Lori and Chad. And they were looking at some paperwork. And I introduced who I was. And I think for the next three and a half minutes, they rapidly walked as I asked them question after question after question. And they responded to one. She responded to one. I said, people around the world are praying for you. They're praying for your kids. And she said, that's great. I saw that on 48 Hours. I just watched it a couple of days ago. Oh, I was yeah. like, that's Nate. <laughs> I know that guy. <laughs> yeah. So let's back up a second, just because I'm a journalist, I'm interested in your reaction. You had to have taken 
a second to say, why don't I go ahead and jump on this? Because instead of listening to the police and waiting, because you were taking a risk that this source had pinged God knows how many other people on Facebook, giving them the same coordinates. So you could have been scooped really easily. Why did you wait? Well, one, because we weren't sure if the tip was legit. Okay. We could have flown to Hawaii and nothing could have happened. So there was the expense. We also didn't want to burn the police department because we knew this was going to be a big story. We didn't want to mess up the investigation either. We would hate to go and confront them and then all of a sudden Chad and Lori are in Mexico. So we wanted to maintain the working relationship. We did have, we were working with Dateline at the time. We've been with them this whole time and they've been great to work with. They did send a producer to Hawaii undercover to keep an eye on it. Wow. So we did have someone on the ground that was able to give us updates, like just in case something happened. So we, we weren't completely in the dark. And again, we didn't know if they were going to arrest him or anything like that. So what I later found out is they had planned to go to their home the next morning and serve a search warrant like at six in the morning when it would have been dark. And what we probably would have got for that video is a knock on the door, a warrant and a slam. Hmm. So the day before, Chad and Lori were on the move from their house in this car and they were pulled over right by the airport. And there were some that were concerned they were going to catch a flight because they had withdrawn a bunch of money, which... If you saw in the video, she had a bag of money that I asked her about. So that I think the police were like, we got to serve this now in case they leave town. So it worked out good for us. I mean, the timing was lined up beautifully. And like I said, I was really hoping they'd sit down and talk with me. You don't want to ever ambush anybody, but if that's what it takes to get answers. And then, Kate, it blew up. I went to bed and I woke up. I think there were like 390 emails. Every news agency in the world had called and they were all coming to Hawaii. And and then I'm trying to think, how do we stay on top of this story? Yeah. And here's an interesting thing. I don't know if if I've shared this publicly, but the day we were set to leave Hawaii, two or three days later, we're packing. Somebody in Hawaii called our newsroom in Idaho and said, Chad and Lori just checked into the Marriott and they had plane tickets sticking out of their bags, and we saw an M on the ticket. Who are these people who are calling? You've got great sources. This guy worked at the resort. Oh, wow. So I'm headed to the airport wondering if we should rebook our flight to go stake out this hotel, wondering where are they going on their plane ticket that starts with an M? Mexico? Yeah. Maui? We end up telling our Dateline colleagues to go to the hotel. We get on the plane. I don't know if you've seen the Dateline. The next, they staked out that every entrance of that hotel for the next 12 hours. And Chad and Lori left to go to the beach. And Dateline was there. And they've shown that video of them in their swimsuits. So it turns out they were tickets to Maui. Yeah. And a few days later, they flew from Kauai to Maui. They visited a bank. And then they flew back to Kauai. And people in Maui and Kauai are the nicest people in the world because I had people sending me photos of their every move. (laughs) On the plane, drinking a Sprite at the airport. There was a woman in the rental car facility named Ursula who called me and did an interview with me. And she said she went up to Lori and said, why don't you tell people where your kids are? And Lori wouldn't say anything. They were hanging signs on the island saying, where are the children? Wow. I mean, it took off. And it was citizen journalists, citizen people, that really helped advance the story so that we could post updates. You know, I'm often asked about that in interviews, whether citizen journalists and the armchair sleuths, you know, every moniker you can think of, of people who are not professionally trained to do this, whether they're helpful or hurtful. And of course, the answer is both. And it sounds like in this case, they were very helpful. Yes, but we also got a lot of people who were passionate, who had their theories that were clogging up 
our phone lines. Misguided, maybe. Yes, that I know their intentions are good. Very good. And especially when the kids were missing. They had ideas about where the kids were. And I would forward them all to the police anonymously. I'd say, we got this tip. I want to check it out. So, yes. I would say overall, though, very helpful. And people that care. Yeah. People that cared about these kids. I can't tell you how many came up to me and were thanking me for going to Hawaii. I, I was just doing my job. I mean, I, I obviously care about them, too. But people that were really invested in the story. How long after, when they were brought back, do they find the children and their bodies? Lori and Chad came back in March of 2020. The bodies were found in June. In June? June. So March, April, four months. So they were holding them on what? Lori was arrested on, well, they went, that day in Hawaii, they gave her a, an order that she had to produce the kids within five days in Idaho. And she didn't do that. So they were able to get her on that and extradite her back. Chad, they never arrested. Chad just came back on his own, hmm. moved into his house and called Lori daily. And then the police finally got some data back from the FBI that pinged Alex's phone there at the house. And they got text messages of Chad and Lori talking about a pet cemetery at his house. The police went to Tammy Daybell's family and said, are you guys aware of a pet cemetery? And sure enough, they said, yeah, it's in this location in the backyard. And that's right where they found the bodies. So is it at this point too late to exhume Tammy's body if this natural causes thing is? No, they exhumed her body three months after she died. It was December, the same day Alex Cox died or the day before, right, right there around that time. They exhumed her body. They did a test. They put her back in the ground the same day. Nothing? They couldn't find anything? They have not publicly released the autopsy results, but sources have told me she died from asphyxiation. And her kids have gone on national television and said they have been told that by detectives. So what is the thought here? What are we up to now? I feel like it changes every single day. It changes. <laughs> it does. The latest is that Lori was found incompetent for trial. She went to a state hospital for 10 months. She was restored to competency. She appeared in court. She did not enter a plea, so the court entered one on her behalf of not guilty. Her trial is set for October. Chad's trial is set for January. The trials right now are still conjoined, so the judge will either need to separate them or they'll have to change some timing. But within a year, finally, there should be some sort of trial. Is Idaho a death penalty state? They are seeking the death penalty on Chad Daybell. Prosecutors have 60 days from the date she was arraigned to announce if they will seek it on her. I imagine they will simply because they can take it off the table later for negotiating, but they can't put it back on. And are we not getting any information out of Chad or Lori at this point? Are they not talking to anyone ever? They're talking to their attorneys and Lori is still madly in love with Chad, wants the trial to be held together so that they can hold hand in the courtroom. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Stephen Davis on a hostage crisis and PTSD. Why they were landed there has been hidden and their actual suffering has been hidden. And some of them had ridiculous experiences whereby they'd be at dinner party or talking to friends and they'd say, oh, you were one of the human shields. Ah, yeah, nothing much happened to you, did it? And imagine that, you know, you don't even get your trauma recognized.
My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.